Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 745 with Tessa West. If you've ever had a bad boss, a jerk, a toxic coworker, perchance, well, Tessa has got the goods to assist with that. So you'll learn, one, how to tell if someone is being an intentional jerk at work. Two, how to identify your particular type of work jerk. And three, how to tell if, in fact, you are the jerk at work. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned here, Drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP745. And while you're there, check out some of our goodies like the Gold Nugget email summary write-ups, the full text searchable transcripts, and so much more over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here is Tessa's story. Tessa West is an associate professor of psychology at New York University, where she is a leading expert on interpersonal interaction and communication. Tessa has published over 60 articles in psychology's most prestigious journals and has received multiple grants from the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. She writes regularly about her research in the Wall Street Journal. Big thanks to Tessa for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Tessa. Tessa, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm so excited to get into your wisdom. It's a frequently requested topic, difficult bosses and jerks, and what do we do with them? So maybe we could kick it off by you sharing one of the most just ludicrous, hilarious, ridiculous examples you've encountered, either directly or, or through people who have wanted to tell you their story <laughs> about a jerk at work. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I hear a lot of stories. I, I, I actually probably hear more lately stories of people who really humiliated themselves in an effort to confront a jerk, mm. you know, crying publicly, that kind of thing. So probably one of the craziest things I've encountered, I've encountered lots of jerks, and I'll, I'll tell one of those stories in a moment, but the craziest thing I ever encountered was I was actually giving a, a talk, I was giving a keynote somewhere, and it was a whole bunch of powerful people in the room, C-suite for a huge Fortune 500 company, and we're all going around the room and talking about our goals and listening and all this kind of stuff, and all of a sudden, one of the women at the table, one of the round tables, just started bawling, and she stood up, and she grabbed the mic, and she had this like whole like speak her truth moment in front of all of her coworkers where she just lamb blasted them for ignoring her, mm. disrespecting her, stealing credit, basically taking over her, talking over her in meetings, cutting her out of email chains and stood up there like 
snot dripping down her face, tears coming out, holding the mic, and just like went off on this crazy speech. And at some point, the president of the company just stood up and said, for God's sakes, can someone grab her a box of Kleenex? (laughs) And it, it really destroyed the mood and it made it really uncomfortable. And I thought to myself, this is what happens when we let our jerks at work take over for so long and we don't confront and then we just explode on them in these really inopportune, awkward situations. So, I mean, that was kind of one setting where I was just surprised at what happens when people feel like they're targets of jerks and they don't actually do anything about it. And then it just kind of happens like that. Whoa. Terrible, terrible moment. <laughs> well, did you did you ever get to find out how things unfolded in the in the weeks and months afterwards? Well, I talked to her in the bathroom afterwards. It okay. was very high school. It felt like high school. I went up to her and I ran into her in the bathroom. And the problem was she couldn't show her face like at intermission. She felt so uncomfortable. Yeah. But yeah, I did follow up with her and I she felt like it sort of helped break the ice and have these conversations. But at that point, things had gone so far that she that she didn't feel like they could really be remedied. She felt like she had to leave her job which is crazy because she held this really high up position in the company. And she just felt like at that point, no one respected her. Now they thought she was super histrionic and dramatic. So mm. there's really no kind of saving the moment for her. Well, I think that's uh, that is a dramatic story. And I think it really is a nice cautionary tale in terms of this is what can happen if you let things get out of control, even though you may very well legitimately be the victim and not at all to blame. If you sort of continue taking it long enough, this might be in your future. <laughs> yeah. Or other negative outcomes. Definitely. You don't want this in your future, but it's possible. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a powerful story to tee this up. Thank you. So, so yeah, we're going to talk about jerks at work. Maybe could you share perhaps one of the most surprising or most counterintuitive discoveries you've made when it comes to your research on the area? Yeah. I think when most people think about jerks at work, the first question they have is how do I confront a jerk at work? And I actually find in our research that probably 50% of the time confronting that person is not a good idea, or at least it's not a good first step that you need to do lots of other things before you're ready to confront someone like collecting data and finding out how widespread the problem is and whether you're the only victim and, you know, all these kinds of things. But I also think people are always surprised when I tell them that when you confront someone, you have to think about it like you would confronting your spouse or your child about something they're doing that they dislike and kind of use those same strategies, backing into the problem, opening with a compliment or things you want to see them do more of before you actually talk about the problem behavior. And people are surprised at that because they think to themselves, it doesn't feel like my job to tell someone you're great when they're terrible, <laughs> you know, and I kind of have to remind them that it, it kind of defangs the conversation a little and reduces the threat, but also to remind them that no one likes having their flaws spelled out to them in detail. It's an uncomfortable experience, even people who, who you think deserve it. And so I think we have this instinct to confront, to lay out people's flaws, to tell them how they make us feel. And I actually don't think any of those things are a good idea when it comes to confronting jerks at work. Okay. Well, that's intriguing. So you said, well, half of the time we, we shouldn't do it at all. Mm-hmm. How do we make that determination and what should we do instead? It's a great question. I think it really depends on the kind of jerk you're dealing with. But often it's the case that you might want to talk to someone about your jerk, but it's not the jerk themselves. So one example of that would be, you know, dealing with a kiss up, kick downer. So these are those 
people that if you work in a competitive workplace, they're, they're mean to everyone who works with them in the same level or beneath them, but the boss loves them because they bring some kind of talent to the team. So this kind of instinct to go and tell them, stop bullying me. I know what you're doing what we learn growing up in school to stand up to the bully, so to speak, often backfires because they just get more conniving and more clever in their strategies. And so confronting them doesn't really get you where you need to be. You, you need to talk to your boss about the person and you can kind of, there's some strategies behind that, but actually confronting an intentional jerk often backfires. Another example of that is the gaslighter. So if you're being gaslit by a boss who's cutting you off socially and building an alternative reality and, you know, they're doing it for some reason, there's something they're trying to hide, going to them and saying, I know what you're up to, you're gaslighting me, is just going to make them more strategic as well. And so you really have to back out of that relationship, kind of build some protection, build a bit of a barrier up find allies and so forth and get the help of other powerful people to exit that relationship. But you never actually want to confront that person. Of course, that's not the case for all jerks. Lots of them you actually do need to talk to. But the ones that are intentionally trying to sabotage you, confronting them and telling them that you know what they're up to and they should stop bullying you almost never works. Mm -hmm. Well, and then, yeah, how, how do we discern whether you're dealing with an intentional jerk or, or an accidental jerk. Like, oh, oops, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I did that. And I didn't realize you hated that. Oh, geez. Excuse me. My apologies. Yeah. I think that there's degrees of sensitivity that people have in what they express. But if you really try to understand why someone's doing what they're doing, that often kind of provides insight into whether they're intentionally being a jerk. So for example, if someone is stealing credit, you can tell if you work in a, in a, team or in an organization where everyone's just throwing ideas in the air, it's really disorganized. And then the end, you, you try to grant credit, credit granting and misgranting kind of often happens in these teams. And we usually, when we're the target of that, we feel like someone stole our credit, but often that's not really the case. It's kind of part of the process of us being disorganized and people not keeping track of who said what. So in situations where there's ambiguity around behaviors, there's lack of role clarity, you know, we don't really know who's supposed to be doing what, who's in charge of what. That's where you often get things like free writing and, you know, credit stealing that might not be necessarily motivated to torture people or ruin people's lives but more kind of a product of the, the situation. The most classic example of this is micromanagers. We often think they're trying to torture us and they don't trust us. But more often than not, they're, they're micromanaging because they're not being managed properly, because they were promoted, they, because they were good at your job, not managing. And there's a lack of clarity from above on what they should be doing. So if you look at the origins of their behavior in combination with the, the context in which you're working, you often get insight into just how intentional this behavior actually is and how much of it is just, we work in a place where there's such this kind of lack of clarity about what's going on that this kind of accidental jerkery can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's handy. I'm sure it, it varies so much, but I'll try to put you on the spot nonetheless. Do you have a sense of roughly what percentage of the time when we perceive jerkery, is it intentional versus misunderstanding, disorganization, some other factor? So is your question, how often do we think that someone's being a jerk because of intention? I guess when we suspect someone is a jerk, what proportion of the time is that actually the case versus a misunderstanding? Yeah, I think that I'm going to answer your question in two ways. First, almost no one admits to being a jerk, so no yeah. one thinks they're being a jerk. Second, almost everyone thinks that someone's being a jerk, they're doing it on purpose. 
So we have a, you know, this bias to attribute people's Mm -hmm. terrible behaviors to, to their individual personalities. So we almost always think that someone's doing it intentionally. I'd say probably 50% of the time they're not. Okay. And in fact, I talk about some extreme cases in my book, like the gaslighter, but those are actually fairly rare. What we usually get is kind of low level stuff that occurs under ambiguous situations where we actually don't know the root cause of the behavior, but we assume it's because they're a jerk and they're, they're, they're intentionally trying to be a jerk. So I think most of us believe that, but probably half the time, there's not really much intention behind it. If anything, people are just completely misguided in what they think is a good idea often at work. Mm-hmm. Okay, well... You mentioned a few of the types of jerks of work, and in fact, you've got a a listing of seven. So maybe for completeness sake, could you give us the quick definition of each of the seven, like the the name, the definition, and perhaps a quick uh, do and don't for each of them? Sure. So the first is the kiss up, kick downer. So I mentioned this one before. This person is uh, horrible to everyone at the same level as them or beneath them, but the boss loves them. And so um, a do for dealing with these folks is do try to find an ally who's a little bit outside of your immediate social network who can connect you to other victims so you can learn how widespread the problem is. Then once you have that information, you can go to your boss to talk to them about it. They'll be much more convinced they they should do something if they think there's other victims. Don't try to confront this person and tell them that you know what they're up to and you're going to tell on them. They know that they already have the approval of the boss and that they have the upper hand. So doing that's just going to make them even trickier than they already are. The next one is the credit stealer. So these tend to be our friends, our confidants, sometimes even our bosses or managers. And what they do is steal credit for your ideas and for your hard work. And I think these folks are often really difficult to deal with because sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's not. So do create processes to help make it really clear from the onset who's done what work so that it really kind of nips credit stealing in the bud. Credit stealing is born out of bad processes. It's not usually the product of a person who's trying to steal credit. I mean, these people have to thrive in these situations. Don't accuse a credit stealer of of stealing credit. (laughs) So this is one of those examples where the minute you accuse them of credit stealing, probably 80% of the time, they're going to come back and say that they did more work than you realize they did, because we all have a bias to think we contributed more than we actually did. So you're just going to kind of end in a, a conflict with these people if you do that. The next is the bulldozer. So these people tend to hold power and status at work. They talk over everyone. They're loud. In the age of Zoom, they're the ones whose you know camera takes up the whole screen. The rest of us kind of zone out when they talk. But they also go behind the scenes to kind of pull levers of power. So if they don't like a decision a group's making, they'll go to the boss or the boss's boss and kind of talk them out of siding with the group. So one thing that you don't want to do is just try to trample down or stomp down on a bulldozer. What you want to do instead is redirect them. So use that attention that they have, that loud mouthiness, to actually echo contributions of younger people. And, you know, when you do this, it actually makes them kind of feel a little bit more included. You also have to go go behind the scenes a little bit and talk to that boss and talk to the boss's boss as a group to kind of even out the different perspectives that they're hearing. The next one is the free rider. So this is the most common type of colleague that we have. These people have charisma for days. They tend to be really well-liked. They take advantage of their social skills to get away with doing nothing on teams. And so, uh, you know, our tendency is to want to confront them and accuse them of free riding and doing nothing. 
But like some of the other jerks at work, when you do this, what ends up happening is they're already disengaged. Now they feel shame. So they're going to disengage even more. They're going to pull back even more. And I could tell you an interesting story of a free rider I know who did this exact same thing. What you want to do instead is to re-engage them, is remind them of why you wanted them on the team in the first place. What about them did you like? Were they creative? Did they help provide social glue? Whatever it is. And then get on a really clear schedule of how you're going to get them re-engaged back in the team. So don't listen to things like vague platitudes. Oh, I'll make it up to you, I promise. You need like a week-by-week exact strategy of how they're going to do it and what they're going to do. And then the next three chapters are about managers. So micromanagers who are really common at work. These folks tend to have top-down control over everything you do, no matter how small or big, and they do it equally to everybody. And so our tendency with these people is to go to them and tell them how they make us feel. You're smothering me or that we don't trust them. But the reality is these usually aren't the issues behind micromanagement. So instead of doing that, do have a conversation about higher level goals. What are your goals and what are theirs? And you can kind of back into the micromanagement, but the problem is that you're misaligned on what you should be doing at work. And you want to come up with a plan of how to actually become aligned. The best way to do that is to have specific goals and then weekly check-in meetings for about 15 minutes to stay on task. A lot of us don't want to engage more with a micromanager, but that's the best thing to do because it gives a relationship structure. Then we have the neglectful boss. So they're kind of the opposite side of the micromanagement coin. So these folks tend to do this disappearing act for a week, sometimes months at a time, but then they freak out and they panic that they're out of the loop. So they show up at the last minute and then they micromanage you at the worst time. Um, and they create massive amounts of uncertainty because you don't know when they're going to show up. So our tendency for these folks is to tell them that they need to meet with us, that it's an emergency, write these emails that say in all caps and bold, urgent, call in, need to meet now. But instead, what you need to do is two things. Offer to offload some of their work to kind of re-engage them. Some of the work that they're doing, you could do more efficiently. And then the other thing that you want to do with these guys is actually give them a longer period of time in which they can set up meetings with you. So instead of 24 hours, give them two weeks. Because they'll be less stressed out, they'll be more likely to engage. And the gaslighters. So these are the really sinister, sociopathic jerks at work who lure you in either with the promise of being a part of something special, a little bit like a cult leader, or the threat that if you don't do what they say, you're going to get fired. And then they isolate you from everyone at work and they create an alternative reality. So what you don't want to do is tell them you caught them lying, that you know what they're up to. What you do want to do is document everything they do. Don't have any meetings that don't end with kind of minutes taken at the end that you send to them. You want to make sure you do those things. And then you need to build up your relationship brick by brick. The thing that they actually intentionally destroyed you have to recreate. Then you need to go to your allies and actually get them to help you form connections with other people in power who can help you exit out of this relationship. But you can't do this one alone. You absolutely have to rely on your social network at work to escape a relationship with a gaslighter. And when you say create an alternate reality, <laughs> I imagine there's many ways you could accomplish that. Could you give us a, a rich story that uh, brings it all together? Yeah. So a couple of the stories that I talk about in my book are related to idea theft. So sometimes what happens at work is you have someone who used to be really special, who used to be kind of at the top of their game and really creative and everything was going well for them. But then just one day things dry up. And so I've heard this story I've heard it in marketing, I've heard it in academia, I've heard it in business, you know, industries that require creativity, 
one day the boss just doesn't have it anymore and they panic and they don't know what to do. And so what they end up doing, or at least in the examples I talk about, is they start stealing ideas from other people. They start downloading documents on shared Google Drives. Hmm. The idea theft kind of starts out small with maybe a little suggestion of what to do that they haven't thought of. And over time, they have completely built this reality of coming up with something new and novel that they really just stole from another person. And in the example I talk about in the book, the person who's on the receiving end of this gaslighting believes that their manager, their boss, has put together this new creative project, this kind of groundbreaking marketing plan. And in reality, it was all stolen. But the gaslighter had to create a whole bunch of lies so that person wouldn't detect the, the stealing, that they wouldn't know that Google accounts were hacked and that kind of thing. And the way they do that is they make sure they don't talk to these other people who are actually coming up with these ideas. They're totally isolated from kind of the creative energy of the team, and then they're able to get away with it. In academia, this has happened a bunch, and in science, where people make up data. And people, a couple professors have gone down pretty hard for not just making up data, but making up staff that ran the data. Like whole persons, like inventing names and... Fake people who helped collect it, all this crazy stuff. But you had to be gaslit to really even believe any of this crazy kind of alternative lab world with fake employees and fake data And the only way that they accomplished this down to like fake names, fake interviews, fake pictures is because they never actually interacted with anyone at work that would tell them that's not a real person. No one's ever seen them around, (laughs) you know? Mm. So it takes, it takes quite a lot to have fake employees and fake ideas and all of this kind of stuff. It takes really having no interaction with other people who could ever fact check that stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's intriguing. And so that's, an alternate reality, all right, <laughs> with all sorts of details and, and inventions. Okay. And you said you had a free writer story as well. Do tell. Yeah. So the one lesson I've learned about calling out free writers is these individuals tend to be very socially sensitive. They get away with free writing because they're well-liked and they can make good dinner reservations and they know all the gossip. So what happened in my situation was we called out the free writer, told told this person we knew they weren't doing anything, thought because they were socially motivated and cared what we thought that would get them to re-engage, but it was just the opposite. And he felt so uncomfortable in meetings that what he did was he set his cell phone to ring, to pretend ring at the last 10 minutes of the meeting so that he could exit the room before everybody else did so he didn't have to talk to anyone. But it was the sound on an Apple iPhone of the alarm. So we mm. all knew it wasn't a real ring. It was just the alarm going off. But he would pick up his phone when the when the ring went off and say, hello, oh, I'm sorry, everyone, I have to leave a few minutes early and leave so that he didn't have to interact with us. And I kind of realized later that that was motivated by this extreme discomfort with hanging around too long te- with team members that had kind of shamed him for doing nothing. And it backfired. It was really hard to re-engage him once we had done that. He had pretend phone rings going off so he didn't have to talk to us. I see. And so then the the better plan is to get a very specific game plan in terms of these are your tasks over the next few weeks that you're going to be owning. And then it's kind of like black and white there. I think it's black and white. I think the first step is to re-engage them by saying, we miss you so much. This was These were all the great things that you brought to the team. Even if it pains you and, and you're rolling your eyes the whole time, kind of reminding them why you liked them 
really helps kind of get over that hump and it helps them with that shame feeling of being called out. There's this great research on free riders showing that even if you show them evidence of their free riding, they almost never admit it. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that just people don't fess up to. So it's actually, you, you don't want to end up in this debate with them over whether they did it or not, how bad of a person they are, a team member. You really just want to talk about what we're going to do moving forward, but also what we want to see more of out of you and what we really liked and wish that we had more. We miss that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about some free riding experiences. And it was odd that it's, there was incontrovertible evidence like, okay, so in your timesheet, you mark this <laughs> amount of time. And yet here we see in the Skype notes how long this meeting actually took with, with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yours is much longer. <laughs> so it was really weird, actually. Yeah. It's really disconcerting when someone won't admit to something that's so obvious. Yeah. It's like they're five years old and their face is covered in like brownie batter. And they're like, I didn't eat the brownies. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and let's, let's talk about just that concept. I've, I've got a buddy. We've talked about this a few times in terms of, I don't know what the construct is. Is it humility, self-confidence, something, but in terms of like, I have enough humility to know that I'm wrong. I make mistakes. I misperceive things. And I often realize that there are multiple sides to to each story, et cetera. And so if, if someone comes out confidently saying something that doesn't seem quite right to me, I could be like, well, that doesn't quite seem to check out, but boy, they seem so confident about that. Yeah. Like I tend to just almost fall for it. And then I remember once, <laughs> I remember once I was having a steak dinner and I thought, this is weird. This doesn't taste very good. And I, I just, I love I love steak. And the restaurant seemed expensive enough such that it should be great. And I thought, huh, something must be wrong with my sense of taste or smell. <laughs> you just had COVID, right? <laughs> Maybe I've got COVID again. Again. And then I thought, well, and I said, well, that's interesting, Pete. Like, I'm here, I'm talking to myself internally. Like, you question your very ability to perceive things rather than, I guess I just give people the benefit of the doubt, like so aggressively until it's like, I've got multiple incontrovertible points of data. And it's like, nope, you're dead to me. <laughs> and it, so I don't know, help us out, Tessa. If we're just too nice, forgiving, proactive benefit of the doubting, humble, easily swayed by a, a very confident talker, And so it doesn't quite seem right. How do we recalibrate? So you're a little Pollyannish. So first off, you'd make a great gaslighter victim. They would love you. Oh, yeah. Because they'll make you feel really special. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the first move of a gaslighter. And and you'll buy it and think this person, this person's so positive and encouraging. They give me so much attention. All of these wonderful things make you susceptible. But I would like to kind of walk up to you and whisper in your ear this one fact that you got to keep in mind, which is ability to read people and empathic ability and confidence in that ability are correlated almost zero in the real world. So if you encounter someone who comes across as super confident and knows what they're talking about and has really strong opinions, that's probably completely uncorrelated with their actual abilities. In fact, some people are great and think they're terrible and some people are terrible and think they're great. There's very few things in social psychology with such a weak correlation as ability, actual ability to perceive and read people and your confidence in doing so. And, but we still think that confidence means competence. We mix them up all the time. 
It's a, it's a really common thing people do, but those two things are also completely unrelated. In fact, there's some status literature showing they're negatively correlated. Oh, wow. <laughs> the louder you are, the less competent you actually are. Okay. Well, I appreciate that whisper. Uh, that is, that's handy <laughs> in terms of, of gathering that. And so then if we find ourselves in that situation, is there a great next step in terms of, of getting, uh, I don't know, is it just like gathering some evidence or doing a test or yeah. uh, talking to somebody? It seems like a little extra dose of information could be very handy. Dose of information and don't kind of follow the temptation of talking to your best friend at work who you see as your shared reality person. So most of us have, if we're lucky, one person at work that is, we're always on the same wavelength with that we can talk to them after a meeting and say, that felt really weird, right? Like that interaction between Bob and Jen was strange. So our temptation is to always go to these kind of good friends and confidants. But what you actually want to do is go to people you don't know that well but who have a lot of connections with others that are outside of your network because they can give you a real reality check of how widespread the problem is. And for people who are targeted by jerks, the best thing to do is to talk to others who used to work with that jerk and have, have since left for whatever reason, because they're just more likely, they have less to lose. So they're more likely to open up. So insofar as you can form any of those kinds of connections, Sometimes I talk about a little bit in my book, the surprising connected people. So when I worked in retail, it was the person who worked the coffee shop because everybody went there. But now that I'm in academia, it's actually the IT people who fix people's computers because they really know what's up. Mm -hmm. Like they know who's actually rude and nice and all the juicy stuff on their computers, which isn't relevant to me, but <laughs> they tend to actually know everybody more than other professors do. Oh, that's true. If they're rude or nice in terms of like, hey, fix this jerk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and versus, some people oh, are thank real you so much. Yeah, they're so nice to other professors, but they treat the IT people like trash. And mm -hmm. I actually learn a lot about those folks and what I wouldn't wouldn't trust them with just based on that information. All right. Well, tell me sometimes the wrinkle we, we talked about the last three categories. Those those are bosses. Do we play the game any differently when it's our boss versus just another colleague? I think so. I mean, some of the basic communication points I've made of so opening with a compliment or strength and, you know, focusing on the behavior, those are really true for everybody. I would say that people almost never give upward feedback to a boss. So people are incredibly uncomfortable having these conversations with bosses. And your, your tendency is to confront people who work at the same level as you and to just never do it with a boss, even in an exit interview on your way out. So I would say that I think it's not so much that we need to approach these differently because of the status difference that matters, but it's more that we have to learn how to confront people who are higher status than us. And we almost never do. So we have a lay theory that you're allowed to do certain things with people who are the same level as you or below you, but you're not allowed to do them if they're higher status than you. And I actually think that's the bigger problem that we need to break is that we need to learn how to ask for and give feedback to everybody, regardless of the level. Because if we kind of operate with this lay theory of it's cool to have radical candor with your teammate, but not your boss, that's not going to solve most of our difficult problems at work. And, and even when you talk to a boss, it's, you're usually complaining about someone at the same level. So you're still kind of doing it. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that matters a lot. I would say though, that when it comes to complaining about powerful people, it really helps to have other powerful people on your side who 
aren't emotionally invested in the problem. So insofar as you can connect with other leaders to get their advice, other managers, it really helps to form that kind of network at the top, even if it's just a quick feedback conversation you have with them so they know where you're coming from, you know, can give you some advice on what works and what doesn't. All right. And then if if things are really nasty, what do we think about in terms of Talk to HR, quitting. How do we think about those decisions? Yeah, I try to avoid the real egregious stuff in my book, the HR related stuff, because I think for the most part, if it's really terrible in an objective law breaking way, so, you know, Title IX, Me Too, like harassment, those are more straightforward to deal with because people are actually violating their contracts. But HR does not care about the low level stuff. In fact, I have dealt with HR a lot as a, as a leader in my department at NYU, and they just like tell us to deal with it ourselves and then call us complainers if this stuff comes up. <laughs> so their bar is really, really high for stuff to care about. And you got to keep that in mind if you want to complain to HR that nine times out of 10, they're going to say, this is a little low level for us. They're not violating anything. It sounds like you just have some conflict, but obviously if they're actually abusing you and violating rules, it's different. But most of the time people aren't. And that's kind of an interesting phenomenon where people often claim, I'm going to report you to HR. I had this happen to me because I told him, I I told someone not to send an email and he did. And then he told me I was going to report him to HR for complaining about the email. It was so stupid. But it's it's kind of an empty threat nine times out of 10 because HR is busy, like with the real stuff. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. And then in terms of, of leaving, like when, when do you think it's severe enough? Like, you know what, uh, this environment is. Yeah. Breaking up at work is hard. And I think this is something we don't actually talk enough about. How do we decide when to leave? I think there's a couple clues. So the first is figuring out whether your jerk is intentional or not. Are they even aware of the problem, right? And some jerks that we talked about, like micromanagers and sometimes even bulldozers, aren't totally aware of just how disruptive they are. So are they aware? So you got to find that out. And then you have to find out if they have the goal of actually engaging in change. So are they motivated to change? We know from the close relationships literature, for instance, that if you have conflict in a marriage and one person's motivated to change and the other isn't, you're headed for divorce. There's really nothing you can do about it unless that person has that motivation. So you need to find out whether they're actually motivated to change or they're just defensive and think there's nothing wrong. And then the third thing is, what's the environment you're working in? Is it a breeding ground for jerks? Not all environments are sort of equally fertile (laughs) for jerks at work. Some really encourage it or at the very least don't do anything about it. And others are really strategic and systematic about making rules and policies that make it hard for jerks to thrive. So ideally, you want to work in a place where it's not super fertile ground. You don't have this dog-eats-dog, hyper-competitive culture that encourages things like kiss-up kickdowners. You know, you don't have absentee bosses at the top who don't care what happens. You want a place that's like a barren desert that these jerks can't thrive in. So if you have kind of the ideal environment, plus accountability, plus willingness to admit or at least understand the problem, then you're in a much better place. But if those things are missing, then I think it's actually really hard. It's really hard to stay in that job. That said, I do worry a little bit about people leaving jobs because of jerks, especially right now we're seeing this with the great resignation, because just because you leave the job doesn't mean you're going to find it any better in another place and you haven't really developed skills of dealing with the stuff. So at least try some of these things first before you're ready to, to move on. 
Yeah, and that's actually a really great place to to be. Well, it's a very unpleasant <laughs> place to be. But in terms of if you feel like you've got nothing to lose and you're ready to leave, yeah. well, rather than leave right away, try some things. And they didn't work, it's like, ah, well, hey, nothing lost. I was ready to be out the door anyway. Nothing lost. I, I learned what works and what yeah. doesn't. I'm all about at least you put forth the effort and you learn something along the way. You learn what strategies might help you in the future. Jerks at work aren't going anywhere and we can't control who we work with. And so this idea that you're going to go to like a grass is greener job, I think just doesn't really exist. I think it's an illusion that a lot of us have. Just wait two weeks. You'll meet a new jerk, <laughs> you know, eventually. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and how might we come to conclude that we are in fact the jerk at work? <laughs> yeah. No one thinks of the jerk. I have this survey on my website. It's in my book called, Are You a Jerk at Work? And you can take my quiz and get feedback. And I had about the first hundred people that did it online. 90% of people thought they were the ideal coworker. Um, Mm. That can't possibly be true. I think most of us see ourselves in a pretty glowing light. But there's a couple things you can do. I think if you're a leader, you can really look out for your Achilles heel at work. What are your weaknesses? What What's the version of you that happens when you're the most stressed out, getting the least support and the most sleep deprived that you are, you know, and all of us have kind of these emotional tendencies that can lead to jerk behavior. So if some of us were really anxious, we micromanage. It makes us feel in control. Others of us, when we get anxious, we really disengage. We free ride or we ne- we're a neglectful boss. So you got to know what those little triggers are. And then you have to put steps in place of what you're going to do when you experience those triggers. This is a lot like cognitive behavioral therapy. You can't control the triggers, but you can control how you respond to them. And I think it's really important to learn those and then replace them with healthier behaviors. Don't just tell yourself, don't do that thing. Actually replace it with something else. But the key here is if you hold even just a little bit of power, no one's ever going to tell you you're a jerk. It's rare. I give people these strategies because no one feels comfortable confronting. Nine times out of 10, you're never going to find it out in a direct way. You're going to have to play detective by figuring out who seems disengaged from you, who used to show up and doesn't anymore, these kinds of things. So you have to really look out for those subtle behaviors in other people And then certainly if you ask them if you're problematic, they're also going to tell you no. So you have to ask them about your specific behaviors. But I really think a lot of this has to do with knowing your own triggers and being honest with yourself about what the worst version of you looks like. And we all have that version. We probably all saw that version during the pandemic come out at some point. And then just admitting to yourself, these are my triggers. This is what I do. This is the worst version of me. Here's how I act. Let's figure out what I'm going to do instead the next time that trigger comes along um, and makes me feel that way. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Well, Tessa, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I'd say that if you feel like you've been a jerk, it's okay. You're in good company. Uh, We all have the potential to be both on the the receiving end as well as the giving end of these things. And I really kind of want to normalize people talking about and thinking about these jerky behaviors because I think they're super common. And don't feel like you are, you know, the only one who's ever been targeted or the only one who's ever acted this way. We all have the potential to do these things. And I think it's just all about learning smart, short, simple strategies of what to do about it. All right. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? <laughs> you know, I had a really hard time with this one. You're not going to like this quote. But okay. So everybody on Mount Everest was once a very motivated person. <laughs> mm, 
Well, it is provocative. So <laughs> it's so my friend Andy Duke is writing a new book on how to know when to give up. And you would think with trying to promote a book where it's all about showing initiative to deal with jerks at work, I wouldn't be pro giving up. But I do actually think it's a really provocative topic of knowing when you've tried all the things and it's time to throw in the towel. And I think especially, and you brought this up, when we're dealing with conflict at work, when is it time to move on? When have you done everything you can and being able to read the situation enough? So this like little meme pops up in my social feeds and it just reminded me of this kind of important point that there is such thing as a sunk cost when it comes to dealing with these things. Oh, thank you. Well. We've had Annie Duke on the show twice, so I'm totally looking at the release date, October 4th. Okay, hopefully yeah. we'll have her around then. She's fantastic. Yeah. Her three-peat. Cool. Nice. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? My favorite study was one done by Wendy Mendez, who's a uh, social psychophysiologist at UCSF, where what she did was she had minorities and whites, I think there are African-Americans and whites, interact with each other. And she found this really interesting effect where white people engage in these over-the-top friendly overtures, and they do this the most when they're the most stressed out physiologically. <laughs> and so she identified this phenomenon called brittle smiles, which is you're tr the harder you try to be nice and overly smile and overly ask someone how they're doing the more stressed out you are physiologically. And it's this great mismatch between body and, and mind and face. And I love it because I study communication. It just shows what a hot mess we often are and why it's so confusing to interact with people. <laughs> I think that's so hilarious on so many levels. All right, first of all, is it only white people? It's whites and African-Americans, but so we don't know okay. if everybody does this, but I'm assuming they okay. do. It's a pretty general phenomenon. All right, well, I, I've just... Well, you said white people, that reminded me of uh, this, this episode of Community in which uh, the character Elroy Patashnik, this like VR scientist says, uh, <laughs> I'm addicted to encouraging white people. <laughs> and, he, and so he just like, this man knows what he's doing. He knows. What, and so he just, he just says these like throwaway phrases that like yeah. just make people feel good. Yeah. And it's so, and it's funny. I do the same thing with my kids when, when I'm, I'm feeling stressed and it was just like, Oh, my sweet angel, would you like some macaroni and cheese? <laughs> it's almost like I'm trying to soothe myself or it's You're like, so, I'm self soothing <laughs> or it's like, I'm unleashing my anger in a way that I hope they can't perceive quite yet. Cause they're two and four and they don't, they totally can, up, by the way, uh -oh, my second right. favorite study is mine. <laughs> And we stressed out parents, dads and moms, and then re we put them through the Trier test, which is super stressful. And then we reunited with them, with their kids and had them play. And the kids picked up the stress from the parents and they showed physiological synchrony with the stressed parents. And they were more, uh, they act more avoidant with like a new person. They were more withdrawn. And this is as young as six months old. Kids mm. start to show this. So we do actually leak all that stuff out. And here's a little tidbit for you. The more you try to suppress it, the worse it gets. So just like go home and be an a-hole to your kids. That's better. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I have an eight-year-old. I get it. Mm -hmm. You're stressed. You're like, hey, you want a cookie? And they're like, mom, why are you acting so strange? Mm. <laughs> you know. Dad is feeling frustrated because it's 3 a.m. <laughs> and still dark outside. And he'd like for you to go back to bed. Okay. Thank you. All right. <laughs> and a favorite book. Ooh, that's a hard one. Children of Time. Okay. It's a sci-fi book by Adrian Chik 
Kalvsky, I probably butchered that. I almost exclusively read sci-fi. So in this book is about spiders on a new planet that have evolved to be super intelligent. And it's really all about status and power and mind reading other species and what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. It's the best social psychological book I've read on power and status about spiders. <laughs> okay. And how about a favorite tool? Something you used to be awesome at your job. Oh, my Google Calendar Excel spreadsheet mm-hmm. that allows anyone who's close to me to just write down when they want to meet in a 30-minute window. And it has saved me tons of time. And it's also made it possible for people who are less comfortable bugging me to just go on and reserve their time. So what I found is the people who are the most comfortable kind of nagging me for time tend to come from like really high social class families where they learn to just push their way through things. Whereas the first gen students don't do that. They feel rude. And then it just creates this kind of mismatch between who has access to me and who doesn't. But if you get the Google link and you just can sign up, it's kind of this great equalizer among all my students. Mm -hmm. Cool. And uh, favorite habit? When I have feedback conversations, I always end them with, do you have any feedback for me? Mm -hmm. That's good. And then they look shocked and they don't know what to say, but then they get used to it after about the third time. That's good. And is there a uh, key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you often? One thing that resonates with people is power and status is established within the first minute of a team and often very subtly. So it doesn't take much to establish yourself as a leader, something as simple as having everyone go around the room and say their names will often work. And people find this to be surprising, but really effective if they want to actually assert themselves in a team. So, all right, well, that feels like a whole nother podcast (laughs) conversation, but (laughs) while we're on the subject, okay, what are the top things I could do to to, uh, appear powerful and high status in my minute? Okay. Is it just like introducing myself powerfully or by being the guy or gal who says, hey, how about we all introduce ourselves? Yes, that's right. I should ask for the intros and that makes me powerful. It does because here's what happens, especially if you don't know each other well, the person who asserts himself is the organizer of the group, not the person with the loudest opinions, the strongest voice, the person who says, let's all go around the room and say our names are, okay, everyone, let's get together and organize, you know, these applications. I'll take A through D. That person, all of a sudden, everything else they do is seen through the lens of leadership, all their other future behaviors, Mm. because they've established themselves as a non-self-interested leader from the get-go. They're actually interested in the well-being of the group. The next piece of advice I would give you is don't try to convince people by talking for a really long time. Yeah. My favorite rule is what Marty Nemco calls the stoplight rule. So you have 30 seconds to make a point. When your light is green, at 30 seconds, it turns yellow and people are hoping you wrap it up. At the minute mark, you're still talking. They've minimized you and they've gone to shopping online. They're not even listening to you anymore. Mm -hmm. So less is more. Okay, thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? TessaWestAuthor.com. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I'd say normalize talking about jerks at work. If you have power, open up these conversations with a tale of your own jerkery mm-hmm. and what you did to realize that you are off kilter at your job. And that will really help other people feel much more comfortable in admitting their own mistakes. All right, Tessa, this has been fun. Thank you. And thank you. Keep on being not a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> you too. <laughs>
I really appreciated Tessa's take about the grass is always greener on the other side mentality that it may be true that you have a particularly horrible person <laughs> that you have to interact with and there's not much you can do about that and thusly going elsewhere is optimal. But I think it really does pay to consider, you know what? These folks can be found in most workplaces. So before making a knee-jerk reaction to really think through what is optimal and make a, a wise decision instead of a rash decision, even though you're furious and want to stick it to them and get the heck out ASAP. So great stuff from Tessa. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP745. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.